Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton, very sleepy Joshua Hatton, with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. <laughs> I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, uh, Mr. Jason Neil Patrick Boris Johnson, not Boris Johnson. Boris Borg? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I'm just trying to give you more names. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not a name we need to add to that list. <laughs> I, I figure once I've told you how much I like the, the Jason Neil Patrick Harris Johnston Yellen, you're like, okay, he likes that. Let's. Let's give him something he doesn't like. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jason Neal, Patrick Harris, Boris Johnson yelling. Nope, no, no thank oh. you. Hard pass. <laughs> well, my, my view of you right now has your microphone in front of your face so that you kind of look like you're part of the Borg from Star Trek's The Next Generation. Uh, and when I said Borg, you had quoted uh, an, a name that has Beyond. nothing to do with Beyond. Star Trek. Beyond Borg? Is that like uh, one of those new vegan burgers? <laughs> I knew you were going to hear Beyond in that. <laughs> he was Swedish. Bjorn. Bjorn. Uh, Bjorn Borg. Say that three times. Yeah, famous rival of John McEnroe. Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg. Bjorn. That's a hard one to do three times. <laughs> well, he won five Wimbledon, so there you go. Oh, there you go. Well, anyway. Anyway, Jason, this is me calling you not calling you, but talking to you from San Francisco. And, uh, and you actually just got back from uh, a bit of time out in LA. Um, I did. I did. And I haven't spoken with you since you came back. What was LA like? Why were you out there? It's true. LA was, was an excellent little visit, actually. Got to spend some time with our collaborators from the Water of Life film. All right. So that was, that was very cool. I got to do a tasting at the very famous Tam O'Shanter in Glendale for the mm. very first time. Mm-hmm. And so that was very cool. Uh, John, their, their spirits buyer there, and Martin, one of their, their lead whiskey experts, um, are both terrific, terrific guys. And so that made for a very easy evening. Uh, we got a crowd who came out who were very receptive mm. to what was being poured. Now, as much as my time in LA was retail focused, and I, I went around a number of retailers and yeah. had conversations with them, not on wax, not on the pad cost, <laughs> but instead talking about, well, first of all, thanks for supporting Single Cast Nation and retail. Yeah. Really means the world to myself and Joshua. Mm-hmm. And then I got to say, you know, well, what are you seeing here? What are you seeing customers looking for? What are your customers looking for? As you look over a number of retail store collections, there's not a lot of independent bottles on Hmm. shelves in, in the LA area, or at least if a store has gone single cast nation, they may also go another couple of IBs, but okay. not add the full gamut. Or you might see a couple of bottles here from someone else, a couple of bottles there from someone else hmm. to begin to make up those names. But as I as I kind of sit and think, you know, I obviously saw Single Malts of Scotland on mm-hmm. shelves next to us. I saw Signatory on shelves next to us. 
And then most common, I saw Gordon McPhail and Caden Heads. And that was, that was really what I was seeing on shelves in the stores that I was in. And so, it, and then, of course, and, and I think this speaks to a recent extra extra, I was actually quite surprised how many full OB offerings were on shelves. So I would see five or six Old Pulteney offerings. I would see six huh. or seven Glen Murray offerings. Okay. Uh, you would see five or six Ardbeg offerings. Obviously, Ardbeg's one we have talked about. That, that the line yeah. is, is quite well known there. But, but I, I was surprised, and I think it speaks to the evolution of our industry. And again, comes straight from the episode of Extra Extra where we covered Gordon McPhail, where instead of OBs, home distilleries, putting out a 12-year-old, a 15, an 18, a 21, maybe a 25, there's a whole load of cask expressions. Ages ah, go off in saying. different yeah, directions, yeah. right? There's there's maybe now a 17. Oh, I, I, will, I will. I nearly took a photo and sent it to you, but I thought, no, I'll, I'll tell them on the podcast. You and I talked about the discontinued 16-year-old Anok, Way yes. back in yes. in our episode where we'd actually gone over our, each of our five essential uh, whiskey uh, bottlings that should be on your shelf. Yeah. And we talked about, yeah, we really missed the 16. And I'd said, oh, apparently there's an 18-year-old coming that's 100% bourbon. I saw it at a store in uh, Glendale, was I? Oh, uh, Pasadena. Yeah. I was in Pasadena yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I saw it on a, on a shelf there and I thought of you. And it was in the cabinet and it was next to us. So... Amazing. So the way you were describing shops doesn't seem like a surprise to me. Were you expecting these shops to simply have a wider array of IB independently bottled whiskeys and like because you thought that's what they were known for or? Not necessarily. I, I think one of the things we talk about is we live in a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. Yeah. And so I predominantly talk IBs with everybody I drink with, yeah. right? When I'm going online and, and placing bottle orders, I'm looking at IBs. And I might round out my order with an OB here, an interesting OB there, like, oh, that's an interesting cask over there. All right, okay, I'll, I'll add that OB. But to actually walk into a store and be faced with such an array from OB... And then a small spattering of IB yeah. was kind of like, oh, that's the inverse of how I live my whiskey life. That was, uh, that was okay. noticeable okay. to me. The, the other thing, if, you, if you've noticed the pattern, when you and I are talking about what's being seen in retail right now, I always put that ball squarely in your court because mm -hmm. you're out there. You're the one selling yeah. the Impex portfolio, right? You're in retail stores so much more than I am, yeah. right? And so for me to be the one walking into stores, wearing the single cast nation hat, looking at it through an IB lens, it's like, huh, okay. 
what are we seeing here? Yeah. And then that's that that's the point where, you know, if you're just if you're just shopping online, you're able to curate what you're searching for. Oh, right. Yeah. It, it's pretty yeah. rare that you would go to an online liquor store and hit scotch and then go through every single listing that they have in that category. <laughs> But when you walk into a store, that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> You've gone yeah. to the scotch section and you're looking through, most likely, an alphabetical ordering of mm. all those scotch bottles. And then the interesting part is what goes on a shelf and what goes in a glass cabinet. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. And it, yeah. Right? And Seems it used arbitrary. to be glass cabinets were like pricey, pricey, pricey things. Yeah. And now glass cabinet was I saw I saw some of our own bottlings that were a hundred dollars, a hundred and ten dollars. Yeah. They were in a glass cabinet. Right? Like, yeah, it's, well, why it's is that why is that off the shelf? Why is that in the glass cabinet? I understand if it's five and a half grand, it goes in a glass cabinet. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. But but a hundred bucks seemed like an interesting spot for it. I, I don't know. I think you I think you're underselling single cast nation. I mean that is that is prized stuff, Jason. Oh, I, I thought you were saying that that's what people want to steal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they gotta lock it up. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting <laughs> you say what you see the most as far as IBs go is is Gordon McPhail. You know, when I had William uh from Isle of Raze in New York, we were talking with some people about various IB brands and in New York there's barely any Gordon McPhail to the point where mm. some people are saying, and you know, and of course we were there just a few weeks after the whole article about Gordon McPhail looking to get away from IBs. There's some New Yorkers that are like, it's already starting. It's already <laughs> starting. And I said, no, if, if you read the article, it basically said they'll be doing this basically for the next hundred years or so. But I said, I think what, I think what we're looking at is, is simply a, uh, a distribution issue and, and nothing more. So I'm yeah. really glad that you that you saw that out there because in New York, we're just not seeing a lot of it out there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah I think the, the one that, that also really remains is Cadenheads. Mm. It's striking how many stores still have Cadenheads now. Whether those are new Cadenheads or they're sitting on Cadenheads, I'm entirely sure yeah. because to be honest I didn't ask questions about Cadenheads while I was standing there but but you, you do you get to see that kind of coverage of those what is what is striking uh, and I hope this isn't talking out of school I, I hope I'm heard to be wearing my whiskey consumer hat here is Cadenheads have really changed their pricing structure and they have gone from being the oh you could get you know the $60 uh, single cask from Cadenheads that's now $120. And it's it's not that I think they're missing the mark on where their pricing is. Yeah, It's more the fact of where they've come from to where they are now, right? And it's, it's when you cut out multiple years of price increases and then it all happens overnight. Uh. It's quite striking, but but I don't think their pricing is off. So I, yeah. I don't. I, there, there was there was someone else. Oh, actually, a retail store owner said that to me about Glen Farkless, where he had Glen Farkless on his shelves, and he said, "Yeah, they 
you know, they really increased the pricing on this. And it's it's really hurt my sales of it. And again, we're talking an N of one, one retail store owner with one group of consumers uh, to whom he sells. I'm not making a grand statement here about Glenfarclas or Sazerac. But but what I'd said to him was, yeah, but they didn't increase their pricing for a long time. And I think when you then catch up with the marketplace, Mm -hmm. it looks like you double your price overnight. But you haven't. Yeah. You just, you just didn't increase it for a long time. Yeah, he kind of shrugged at that comment because he was still seeing the price he had it on his shelf for today. <laughs> There's so many reasons for all this stuff. I mean, we can go, you know, deep within a rabbit hole. I just, I just think of the cost of energy in the UK right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. then that's just one factor. Uh, the cost of malt that's more than doubled, you know, the cost of mm-hmm. oak used to be if you wanted to get a, a bourbon barrel, it would cost you 80 pounds, 100 pounds. Now you're looking at 200, you know, something like that, a bit closer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, oak's gone up, glass has gone up, everything has simply gone up. And yep. you know, in the case of the of the obies, the you know, the owners bottling, the, the producers themselves, those are the things that you think about of what affects your overall cost. With IBs like Cadenheads, yeah. they're purchasing liquid from the producers. And eventually, they're mm. going to run out of some of that older liquid that costs a little <laughs> less. And they got to work into some of the newer liquid that costs a bit more. So, you know, it's it's... <laughs> It's these things that are difficult to explain to people because you can so easily be blinded by new big price and and you can't really hear or absorb the the whys and what for is behind all that. Well, and and to close the loop on, on what we've just been chatting about here, that was the very reason for Gordon and McPhail's announcement. Right, mm. you can't control your pricing when you're buying it from a third party. Yeah. How do you control your pricing? You bring it in house. Yeah. Now they know what they're producing a liter of alcohol at in any given year, month, or day. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a game changer totally. if you're an IB. Right, it's a game changer because you've gone from an IB to an OB. That's why the game has changed. <laughs> So, so yeah, I, you know, Gordon McPhail's announcement to focus on their two distilleries makes absolute perfect sense. It is interesting because I think you and I, in covering it, <clears throat> talked about some positives for them and all of that. And we talked about, oh, and now every cask in the warehouse becomes rarer and your price goes up. But listen to the detriment that you already laid out in this intro is people read that article and said, oh, I think it's already started. How many people don't go back to a liquor store and ask for Gordon McPhail or look for Gordon McPhail IB, right? Even though you and I know from parsing the article, mm-hmm. they're in this game for another hundred years. Yeah. But just that blanket announcement, that headline now has some people saying, well, I don't need to look for Gordon McPhail anymore. They're out of the business. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Not true. <laughs> not true. Yeah, it's... I- I really think you have to have a certain level of understanding of how an an independent bottler works to fully grasp what's being told to you. You know, just, you know, I'm here in, um, 
in San Francisco, and we're here for Whiskey and Barrel Nights at the Pleasanton Highland Games, which you know you and I have been to before. Indeed. And Indeed. Um, and so it, it's it's me and um, some other guys from Impex, Brian Devora, as you know, and a new guy. Lovely. Uh, it's a new hire, and we're with Sam, of course. Oh, and we've. The most important, we have Ollie and Chanel with us too, Oliver Chilton and Chanel LaCore. So that's been wonderful. But the, what I'm trying to get to is <laughs> um, the the newer guy comes from you know years in the beer world. Fantastic salesman, knows his beer inside and out. Knows his beer like we know our whiskey, right? But mm-hmm. when we're when I'm sitting and having a conversation with Ollie and Chanel and getting into some of into some of the weeds, where, which to us as we're talking seems a bit surface. In hindsight, it obviously wasn't because he said, you know, there were times where I was struggling trying to understand what you were saying because this is new to me. I don't really understand the mm. context. I don't understand, you know, you're talking about this bottling or that bottling or, you know, this yeast and, and that. And and it was quite clear to me that while we were having this conversation where we're all on the same level and understanding <laughs> the nuance is simply because we've had years of creating context that allows us to to navigate that conversation with utter ease. And so here mm-hmm. he is as a guy from the beer world just getting into whiskey, just not just getting into whiskey, but getting more into whiskey and learning about these inner workings that we're just talking about now with Gordon McPhail, he doesn't have the, the tools or the language to fully absorb what's being said. And he's a guy that actually knows whiskey and is starting mm-hmm. to learn more. So the people yeah. who don't really know whiskey are going to struggle and, and they're going to do what, what you just said. Yeah, you have to have, <laughs> you, you have to be in the know. Those in the know, no independent bottling. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait wait till your man starts walking into retail store after retail store and they start presenting the same problem over and over and over again to him he's gonna he's gonna get in the weeds real fast yeah. <laughs> um so did you do any tastings any pourings did you get a chance to to eyeball the public uh in your in your early moments in san francisco yeah, I did. We we hit a few shops and a few bars, uh, you know, just presenting items that are for sale from our distributor, JVS. But then I did an event at a private club, which was, which was really interesting. So, you know, it's different from the scenario you're talking about with these California laws where you can only mm. pour so much and you can only do this and blah, blah, blah. Here you are, you're in a private club. You could do what you want in the private club because it's a private club. Um, and so it was me, Ollie, and Chanel, and we're pouring a combination of uh, single cast nation, single malts of Scotland, Port Escague, and elements of Isla. And, man, they were expecting 20 people to come in maybe because everybody's on vacation. Burning Man is happening. <laughs> it's the Labor Day weekend. You know, there's all these things. If, if there weren't closer to 60 people there, um, mm. yeah, it was, it was really great. Awesome. So we, it was just very nice, intimate, able to have some, some conversations with people who 
didn't really know independent bottling. Some of them did, and some of them recognized Ollie's name. But people who were just interested in, you know, the, the, there's a lot of businessmen and women that work in, with the club, and they wanted to understand the business aspect of, of how it works. <laughs> and I thought that those, it's those conversations that I kind of enjoy at times. <laughs> I try not to belabor the business point and try to get it back to distilleries and excitement well, and grain. And <laughs> once you're on global logistics, like you go to a dark place. No, it, it wasn't that. I mean, from I'm, I'm talking about exactly what we're talking about now, right? The inner workings, like how does whiskey get from one place to the next, from the producer to the bottling hall, from the producer's warehouse to the bottler's warehouse, and, and just how the system works. It's the same story that we, that we tell when we're doing a class, but they understand it from a business level and a logistics level. <laughs> were, were they asking the, the age-old question on why a producer would sell to an independent bottler in the first place? No one asked that, but I was waiting for it, and so I cut them off at the <laughs> <Right>. pass. <laughs> so, no, I mean, think about it. If you if you have your Glenlivet 12-year-old and it starts tasting different, that's an issue. So Glenlivet makes other great liquid. It just doesn't have the same flavor profile. And they're like, oh, okay, I get that. And so it was nice, nice. yeah, nice way to just sort of <laughs> cut them off at the pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's remarkable, right? We're, we're sitting here talking. I'm just back from LA, got a week, and then I'm off to Scotland. You're in San Francisco. You're home for a, a week, less than a week. And then you're off to Scotland. We've currently got Jess in Newcastle doing an independent bottler festival. Ah, yes, we yes, must, yes. must, must get her on wax to hear how that went, share that mm. with the listeners. But she gets back from Newcastle and immediately goes to Israel. And she's doing a master class at Whiskey Live in, in Tel Aviv. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and then and then she comes back, I think, the same day or, or the day before you land in Scotland. And you get to Scotland the day before I land in Scotland. So <laughs> what a time for us. This is, All three of us are out and about spreading the, the single cast yeah. nation word. This is... This is good. This is the very beginning of September. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's going to be a busy October, November. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Should we transition? (laughs) Yeah, please, because I don't want to be reminded of just how busy we are. (laughs) (laughs) So, So as the masthead suggests, today's interview is with Gabby Dion of the mixing glass in Costa Mesa in Orange County. Depending on traffic, it's about 40, 45 minutes outside of LA. Mm, okay. And and we have known Gabby for, for a good while now. Uh, our very own Elijah uh, made the, the introduction. Can I still call him our very own? Our formerly very own Elijah made the introduction. <sighs> oh, he's still in my heart, Jason. <laughs> He's still in our hearts. He's still ours in our hearts. Um, And so, yeah, so he he made the introduction. Um, I've done tastings at the mixing glass, at the the previous mixing glass. 
this go around, we talked about doing a tasting at the new mixing glass. Mm. Uh, in the interview, Gabby talks about the pours that can be done, the the presenter who needs to be in place. Yeah, but it's 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 a wonderful, far ranging conversation. We we talk about her beginning in cocktails. We talk about her connections to to the kitchen, to the the chefing world. Uh, we talk about the first mixing glass, the new mixing glass. I even ask for a little recommendation on something off-piste that, mm. um, that I, will, I will leave that as a teaser for people to go on and, and listen and enjoy <laughs> uh, the conversation in here. But, but far-ranging, really wonderful, and, and a really cool person to just sit and hang out with. And yeah. I, I think that comes across in today's interview. Gabby Dion, thanks very much for having me at the Mixing Glass today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for my lunch. That oh. sandwich was dynamite. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad I had a vegetarian option today. You know, as soon as I tasted it, I was like, Josh would totally be rocking this. It oh. was absolutely in his wheelhouse as well. Love and that. and as we were having lunch, you said it's an artichoke spread? Yeah, I take grilled artichokes and then I um, make like a spread out of it using uh, lemon zest, oh. comfy garlic, olive oil, a little lemon juice, salt and pepper. That's it. <laughs> but it's like, it should be on everything. I, I actually spread it on a plate and then put an arugula salad on top oh, yes, of it yes. with shaved pecorino and yes. then just crush that with like a piece of protein on the side. Oh my gosh. Well, for me, a piece of protein for you, maybe <laughs> like some, a plate of beans or something. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. <laughs> So meat-centric over here. You could put a quinoa salad over the top of that and absolutely go. crush it as well. All right, so we've jumped in at the end. Let's let's circle mm. this back a little bit. So so we've known you for a good number of years. Mm. Uh, we were introduced through Elijah yes. back when he was still repping JVS in Orange County. Mm-hmm. The mixing glass where we're sitting is in Orange County. Uh, is this Costa Mesa? It is Costa Mesa. Okay, this is Costa Mesa. So you, for the last... 11 months have been in a new facility. Mm-hmm. You came from a much smaller facility. Oh, yeah. But before we get to that part of the story, we are going to talk about retail and selections and curating selections. But let's go back to, I mean, at the beginning of your adult <laughs> life. But I've known about your interest in cocktails and your... Did you ever, here's the first truth question here, did you ever call yourself a mixologist? I tried to avoid it at all costs. <laughs> You're our kind of people. But we still <laughs> still got called it. <laughs> did anyone ever call themselves a cocktail artist? A cocktailogist, I heard a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could go either direction with that name. That's so good. So... So how did you get into cocktails? Where, where was the spark for that? Where was the interest? You know, I was bartending um, at P.F. Chang's in 2004 or 5. My memory's spotty mm-hmm. for many reasons. <laughs> um, and I really was pretty cocky. I thought I knew everything. Um, but I was 22, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I m- went on a trip with my um, then boyfriend, now husband, Chris, to Brooklyn. Mm. And we sat at a bar and I could not tell you what I was looking at. The entire back bar was foreign. 
And I was so, my interest was piqued. I came home and I, I tried to find bars here that were like that. Oh, wow. Mostly in LA, wow. obviously not in Orange County as of yet. Um, and that was what opened the like, you know, let's not make my ties out of uh, orange juice, grenadine <laughs> in a really tall glass with a ridiculous cherry flag. That was the P.F. Chang's way. Okay. okay. Um, and I found like-minded people around me and we all kind of banded together and, and tried to educate each other, educate our community um, and try to bring Orange County into, you know, the... 21st century. <laughs> yes. <laughs> were there were there key flavors that you were interested in tripping on, following down, or initially you, yeah. it was a amaro. I fell down an amaro rabbit hole early on. Oh. Um, you know, I had traveled to Italy when I was a little, like maybe even the year prior, just by coincidence, and didn't. They get amaroed out at all there. I never even saw one, um, okay. which is pretty funny. I think they just off love to offer tourists lemoncello. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, or Vinsanto. Sweet stuff, because we're Americans. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, they were they were so peculiar to me because they, they had such a wide variance of sweet, of bitter, of flavors, of, you know, alpine and, and burnt orange. There were so many flavor profiles and... Nobody could really clearly define it at the uh -huh. time. You know, I even went to um, a New York-based education program called um, Bar Five Day back in 2005 or six, and they didn't even have an education portion on Amaro at that point. Oh, wow. It was like tossed in with cordials and liqueurs, and uh, I think we spent 15 minutes on it, and there was kind of a little <laughs> bit of pushback at the time, like, when can we get more? And, you know, they expanded it pretty quickly after that so i do have an amaro question for you okay so i've been making oh gosh i'm gonna put my myself on the spot here <laughs> is it a a black manhattan yeah that gets made with rye uh-huh mm -hmm. and there's amaro in that yeah generally it's a verna yes that's like the classic yeah so so is a verna that's like a go-to bottle it's got maybe the gold label yeah it's like so mm -hmm. my question to you is is there an amaro i could be using for my black manhattan that would elevate and take Absolutely. me beyond the the, the shelf staple averna's very i don't want to call it one note because mm -hmm. I, I think it's a great a beginner amaro mm -hmm. um but it is not bitter it is like more almost like you know, hints of like coffee and chocolate and, and things like that. But it's mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, um, pedestrian is a terrible word, but you know, it's I entry level, you. entry yeah, level tomorrow, but there are lots that can take you in different directions. You know, if you want to stay close to the same vein with a little bit more interest, I would try Amaro Chiocharo. Um, I would try, um, Bigelay's Kina Kina. <laughs> Both of those are delicious. Bigelay's Kina Kina actually comes from France. Um, but they both have that Such same dark, uh, not too bitter, but um, still has like some bitterness to it. They both have like hints of orange. They play mm. great in a black Manhattan. Oh. They also play really great in a whiskey sour too. Ah, okay. um, but that's a really great way to go. But you can also get kind of weird and like as you get more comfortable with bitter qualities, you can try things that um, 
like Chinar, but Chinar is definitely going to be more bitter. So longtime listener James Foster wrote in with a cocktail recipe featuring Chinar. Mm-hmm. And Josh and I promptly called it Sinar mm-hmm. and got a, got a text or an email from another longtime listener <laughs> uh, just saying, like, I think it's actually Chinar. But he made a rusty artichoke um, and it was Wee Beastie meets okay. Chinar. Okay. And it sounded terrific by all accounts. I, I, I didn't have any Chinar in the house. I hadn't made any. Um, but, but you're then saying Chinar will take you down a more bitter route. Right, but with that same, you know, because there's other Amaros that have like heavy alpine notes, right? So you're picking up pine and that kind of thing, and they tend to be a bit more sweet. So what ends up happening if you switch for something that's like maybe more bitter or more sweet is excuse the cocktail and your your two to one proportion kind of goes out the window if you did a two to one proportion on a sweet amaro like montenegro it would be unpalatable you'd probably want to go a half ounce instead but then it's not a black manhattan it's something else (laughs) um maybe more like a take it on an old-fashioned but that's for another conversation yeah (laughs) so so i'm josh and i've talked about this and we've had other cocktail people on the on the podcast as well I am a big fan of three-ingredient cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I already struggle to remember three-ingredient cocktail recipes. For you, in your, in your history with cocktails, even currently with cocktails, do you have a comfort zone that is multi-ingredient? Are you, is it more like a recipe where you're thinking, well, if I put X in it, I have to put Y in it. And if the flavor profile of X is that way, then I need, you know, to balance it with this percentage of Y. Like, mm-hmm. are you are you thinking of cocktails like a chef or have you got a Rolodex in the brain where you're like, name of cocktail, ingredient list, boom, put it together. I'm, I'm operate more like a chef. That's my background. My dad was a culinary artist. My, my mm. sister as well. Um, they, you know, taught me flavors and that is kind of my, I, my memory is terrible. I did right, a right. pretty good amount of drugs in my youth. I have two kids. Uh, I balance way too many plates. So, um, I always envied the bartenders I worked with who'd be like, Oh, let me just think of the most esoteric cocktail from 1865. Right. And they've got the whole spec in their head. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to look up an old drink that I don't know. There um, go. there's plenty of three ingredient old drinks like the last word and the oh, yeah. uh, Negroni and mm-hmm. those, those things that will get you very far. But I'm constantly teaching people like how to spontaneously make drinks at home, not based off recipes, based off of um, like a format or Mr. Potato Head, we call it. Like you take off Ah. Mr. Potato Head's smile and put on a frown or you put on his crazy eyes or whatever. (laughs) So you're swapping out ingredients. So you take a basic old fashioned recipe and instead of it being the same thing every time, which is bourbon, a sweetener and bitters, you can change out the sweetener, you can change out the spirit, you can change out the bitters. And you've got a different drink for every day of the month. Mm. You know, your base spirit does not have to be bourbon. It can be mezcal. Your sweetener can be agave. It could be, um, you know, an ancho liqueur instead of uh, like actual sweetener. So we have formulas for all of that. You know, we and I stick to them because they are generally work very well. Interesting. 
Um, but like, you know, margarita is another great example. It's a sour spec, right? And, and you can swap out the lime juice, but if you swap it out for grapefruit, are you going to get the same acidity? No. So I, you know, those, that's where my brain's working and I'm constantly like, all right, well, if I'm swapping out for grapefruit, I still need to fortify it with a little bit of acid, meaning lime or lemon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So even with grapefruit going on in there, Mm -hmm. you would still have citrus doing the job. Yeah, because we call grapefruit, orange juice, pineapple juice, half sours. They're not full sours like Ah. a lemon or a lime. Meyer lemon, another half sour. So if I want to use those juices because they offer so much flavor and interest, then I still need to have a little backbone. So I usually will drop down the, the full acid to a quarter ounce. And then the gotcha. full, the half acid's like a half ounce. That's a lot of nerdy shit. Sorry. No, that's fantastic. I, I, I love the animation to you here. I can tell you're still digging cocktails. Uh, yeah, I don't drink a lot of them these days. But even... <laughs> I just can't shake <laughs> the background in cocktails. You know, you I try to you reinvent there. yourself. <laughs> you try to reinvent yourself and the people just still want cocktails, which is great. And it's what I do probably best. You know, I'm dabbling in cooking. I'm dabbling right. in wine. Right. And I still do cocktails best. So what then led you from the cocktail days to the opening of the first mixing glass? And, and when was that? Yeah, so I was bartending, running bars um, in 2012 when I got pregnant with my first kid. Um, I tried continuing the bar (laughs) after I went back, um, you know, after my maternity leave, which was about, you know, a couple months. And I was uh, up till 2 a.m. And then trying to get up with a baby at 6 or feedings in the middle of the night, and I couldn't do it. Um, Not for long, at least. So one of my friends was like, you know you should open a shop. There's a couple scattered around the country that are amazing. There's nothing any like that in Orange County. Um, his name is Bobby Navarro. I will always credit him for pushing me because awesome. he definitely pushed me, uh, took me down to the city, was like, let's ask them some questions. Because that concept was not present here. You know, okay. we wanted to pe- teach people how to make cocktails, set up cocktail sets. Um, and we really had to get like a specialty permit to open in Costa Mesa. And so when, by the time all that passed, it was 2014, um, I kept my toe in bars by doing cocktail menus for, um, a group that's based in Orange County called the Vodka Group. Um, and I continued with them until 2020, right, uh, right at the pandemic. I got uh, laid off at that point with them, but the truth is. I was always distracted. You know, I'm trying to run my own store and do my own thing, but I'm also doing other things as well. So, um, yeah, that store ran for eight years in the 300 square foot space that it was. (laughs) Uh, We always called it small but mighty. You know, we bought our own barrel picks and sold them out real quick. We had uh, in-person cocktail classes that would sell out in, you know, under five minutes um, and they, it was all great and things changed a little bit during the pandemic as it did for everybody. Sure. Um, sure. So, so I want I definitely want to talk pandemic, but I want one of the things I think our, our listeners enjoy hearing is you, you said five, six years, seven years in that mm-hmm. space. What trends did you see? What, what did you see? start from nothing and burn bright and then fade away? And, and what kind of surprised you? It's, a, it's, a, it's an open-ended question. But yeah, there were so many things. I mean, first, we really were crushing 
sales of tools to begin with because you okay. couldn't find a okay. good jigger bar spoon, mixing glass, shaker tins, things like that. And okay. they, um, we loved selling those. We, they were also the highest margin we had in the store, <laughs> you know, liquor people in retail always think everybody has 50% margin on things. And you're like, Mm-mm. we in spirits, wine and beer do not. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> but it is not a consumable item. Eventually mm-hmm. the sales of that, dribble away because sure. you've got your audience and they, they slow their buying of that or completely stop because you don't need to buy another set of stainless steel tins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we shifted more towards um, whiskey at that time. And you're talking 2014, 2015. Um, that was our biggest selling category. We were, you know, selling McKenna for $28 a bottle. And That's it. Eagle Rare. Things I cannot get now, uh-huh. literally, because we're so small. So we get no allocations, zero. Um, in fact, that gives me a little chance to bone pick with Sazerac, who has now become with a beer distributor out here. And uh, we were like, we just want to get the basic stuff we've always had, like Eagle Rare. And they told us we had to buy 150 cases of their other things before we could get one case of Eagle oh, Rare. Oh, wow. You're talking about one of their entry-level bourbons? Wow. I was used to getting thrown around for, you know, I didn't ever ask for any of the Buffalo Trace Antique Collections or the Pappies because we didn't have the volume. Okay. But I I, I expected I could still order Buffalo Trace and Eagle Rare. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> we are an anti-Sazerac house as of 2023. We don't carry any Sazerac products. Okay. Okay. Whoa. We just dropped some truths in here, Gabby. Yeah. How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> Shit just got real, real fast. You know, you spend all this time building these brands and then they turn their fucking back on you. Pardon my French. Because you're too small? Well, there's, there's no reward for that loyalty that you're talking about in, in 20, 13, 14, 15, right? It's, right. There's no, like, you were there doing your best. That's fine. We're getting a delivery. Not a worries. All right. Not a worries. We delivery can, coming in. Yeah. We can take a pause. Let, yeah. let the de- delivery come through. Moving right along. Point loose and fancy free. Getting there is half the fun. Come share it with me. Moving right along. And we're back from our successful delivery there. So we were talking about trends. Things things you'd seen. Yeah. We'd had a moment discussing Sazerac. Mm. And so what else? What else were you seeing? Were, at that point, were you in, were you getting Japanese so bottles we, before they became allocated? We were. In fact, again, I, I was a relationship again. I had a relationship with the local um, beam rep down here, and he was giving me basically what I wanted, not what I, you know, what my volume indicated, Okay, um, which was really nice. And... Um, as soon as he was gone, that relationship was gone. He moved on to another company and we didn't have that anymore. Yeah, yeah. But we were, you know, we had a little bottle of empty Pappy on the counter with a skull and crossbones coming out of it that said, don't ask. Like, because <laughs> it was like, you know, one foot in the threshold. Do you have Pappy Van Winkle? Yes. And no. And I'm not going to look at anything else in your store. Great. Um, and then that changed to Yamazaki. Okay. Yeah. And it yeah. was like, it would not go away. Yep. Yeah. Um, and for a while, we did have it. Um, and then eventually that dried up. It turned into Foursquare for about, I don't know, like six months. That okay. was a flash in the pan. Oh, interesting. And people were asking about Foursquare all the time. And then um, it became allocated. And then 
I don't oh. know. It didn't. It didn't last as long, at okay. least here. Interesting. Yeah, um, Foursquare is still one that when we put out a Foursquare, there's huge demand for it. It's and Foursquare delicious. is something we get asked about you know, uh, a lot from Single Cast Nation. Yeah, we love Richard Seal and, and his mission and, and you know the others that in the rum world, like Luca Gargano, that are singing those same messages. Yep. Um, but rum has not caught on here as much as we would like. I'm not sure if that's an Orange County thing. I certainly go to Europe and think, my God, look at all this beautiful stuff they have here. Okay. There's a rum shop in Paris called, oh, shit. I think it's called Excellence Rum, but it's probably pronounced in a French way. <laughs> um, and they are amazing. It is so fun to visit that store. Uh, I nerd out with them and they will pour me things and taste. And I usually leave with like $600 in damage, maybe more. <laughs> I won't ask how you get back to the I US. I split it on a different credit card so nobody really knows what's going on, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> so so from those those kind of trends, I've always known you as somebody curating a very special in-house selection. Did customers really take to that? Obviously, you've talked about having cocktail-making classes and clearly your expertise with cocktails. Did that enable customers to put their faith in you? And as you're saying, here is an Amaro. Give that a try. Don't maybe do your Averna for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, did did customers come naturally to that? Did you enjoy that role? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, <laughs> seeing the confidence grow in each person ah, on our picks was very, oh, lovely, very nice. Um, you know, they still to this day will come into this location and say how much they loved going to the old location and having, you know, Tessa and Yanko be such like amazing ambassadors of, of, you know, good spirits and, and fun cocktails. Um, and we saw cocktail trends change too. Like we were selling 300 Moscow mule cups in, in like <laughs> kits a year, um, in the beginning. And then that went down yeah. to like 20 yeah. <laughs> a couple years later. And then, you know, there were, there was like always the pushback on gin and that faded and now people are gin crazy Yeah, and, um, that never goes away. Gin is constantly in our top performing categories. It's gin, agave, um, whiskey is dipped for us a bit. Um, and then we always have strong performers in like cordials and amaros because you can't find the selection we have anywhere really um and certainly even if you can find that selection the people that work in that retailer perhaps do not know as much as you know we do about each bottle um and that sets us apart for sure absolutely Uh, absolutely i i don't know how quickly you could call this to mind but did you ever have an experience where you thought there was a product that was an absolute slam dunk that just never found an audience. Yeah, brandy. Ah, I love brandy so much. Oh, I I love um, Calvados. Um, I love young Calvados. Okay. Um, okay. I love. I, I actually I have a thing with aging of spirits. I think for me it's like eight years is the sweet spot, okay. depending, of course, on the climate, right? You know. Sure, sure. Older rum, younger. Older Scotch, younger rum, maybe, but um, like a young Calvados with tonic water 
in a cocktail, like will blow your mind. Um, but I always want to see Brandy doing better and it just, it just never picks up. And even if, you know, in the winter months I can convince people to make a couple cocktails with Brandy, um, I'm still not getting them to sip on things. And, you know, they tend, if they're going age spirit, they tend to reach for whiskey over and Mm -hmm. over again. And, um, you know, we get that response with rum that it's too sweet, you know, and, and it's this, American idea that rum is sweet. Yeah, it's a strange statement. Right. I mean, it's, they, people have been (laughs) fooled for years by drinking rum that is artificially sweetened. Yeah. Or not, you know. Yeah. Um, And so there's their perception. And I'm just like, please try this. It's a bang, it's got more bang for your buck than, than this. And, and it'll do you fine. But brandy definitely, I think, would be my answer for that. All right. Oh, I wish I'd known that. We just sold out of our 1989 uh, cognac ah. single cask. Well, then. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> just got awkward up in here. Um, okay, so then you've, so you've, you've got the 300 square foot store and then you have the brainwave or, or maybe did you reconceive of your concept? What led to the... I'm going to move to a store that's not 300 square feet and I'm going to outfit it from bare concrete walls and pillars that were in the wrong places. Oh man, the pillars. Well, there were a couple different iterations of where the concept was going to go. I knew it couldn't just stay in there forever. I also, I really enjoyed that space because it, it is very much like an incubator area. There's a lot of small businesses who couldn't necessarily rent a, a 1500 square foot place to start uh, with. Okay. And so starting small works, but eventually you grow out of that, not necessarily because of the space, but because you know, the ownership of the buildings changed and they didn't keep up with marketing. And then the pandemic happened and we were um, a necessary business. So we were open and everything else was shuttered. So uh, we, no, we did not, ex- no, <laughs> we did not experience the same growth that other liquor stores experienced because we were, you know, not street facing. Yeah. So that, w- that expedited the need to get out of there. Um, and then, you know, a small business like mine that's been in business for nine years doesn't necessarily have access to funding or good funding. Uh-huh. And the SBA loans that came out and offered to small businesses through because of the pandemic was our first chance to like really be able to put money into our own business and grow. Ah, okay. um, and that I think people don't talk enough about because I know a lot of people like me took advantage of it and and it's not you know i do pay i am paying it back um but the rates are you know um, unbelievable and the terms are unbelievable and for a small business you just really it's hard to get that kind of money interesting but we originally before the pandemic i wanted to open a place that was uh saddled with a bar because that's my background but Uh again the pandemic kind of opened my eyes to not really wanting to be into that service aspect of working late nights again so You know, we all centered ourselves and realized what was important. And um, I was mentally saved by businesses like this in L.A., like this market where you could go and basically buy food and drink like a European. Yes. You know, eat uh, some beautiful tinned fish or some charcuterie and cheese and not, you know, 
have no time and go through a drive-through. So that definitely formed this concept as well, because we are not just liquor and cocktails anymore. We have wine, we have a beer, we have pantry items and cheese and charcuterie and sandwiches. And we're applying our same like ideals and curation Mm -hmm. that we did to spirits and cocktails and bitters and things like that to all the other new categories. I I know during the pandemic, you were running a ton of online tastings, Zoom tastings, Mm -hmm. Zoom cocktail classes. I remember at one point I talked to you and you were sending out hundreds of tasting kits or creation kits, cocktail kits. Now that you've got the, the liquor store with or liquor sales with a market, are you able to do in-house cocktail classes here? I I know licensing is, California in some ways seems wide open, like they've got it all figured out. You just said Target, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you can buy a desk lamp and a chair to nurse your baby in and a cot and a new pair of non-leather shoes and And, a bottle of whiskey and, you know, almond milk, Mm -hmm. all at Target. so it seems on one hand it's all figured out and then the other hand I know there are some places where they don't have the licensing to even pour a sample for a customer yeah. on a bottle they would want to purchase which is mind-boggling to me. Are you able to do in-house cocktail classes? No. Because? Because of the California laws. Um, oh, that's wild, man. Yeah, their idea is, I mean, they have loosened a little bit f- meaning that now we can do in-store tastings that are led by the brand Okay. Um, they can pour a small amount. It's a quarter ounce. Okay. Um, up to three tastes per customer. Okay. Um, so generally we'll do a Saturday tasting and we'll have, you know, someone such as yourself pick three SKUs that they want to show everybody and, and you can stand there and talk to everybody and, and it cannot be led by myself. Um, that's so wild. It is so wild. You're curating selections for customers. Yeah. You know, a thing or two. And you're not allowed to open three bottles from your shelves that you maybe brought in a six-pack of and you'd like to move them out the door? Nope. I mean, that would be required a different license. There's so many, the, you know, the liquor license are attached to numbers. You know, there's 21, 41, 47, 48, 40. Like, there's all these different ones, and they all mean something different. So we're considered an off-premise, which means consumption is not done on-premise. Yes. On-premise would be restaurants, bars, places with wine and beer licenses, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, they do not allow it. So we got around it the at the last store by having it off-site in a space that was just adjacent to ours. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and then we had, a, like, a temporary permit pulled by a charity for every class that we did when okay. they were in person. Oh, okay. We're currently figuring out a similar situation for us for in-persons to come back at least quarterly because we used to do them monthly before and um, you know, they were a a lot more work than the virtual ones. So once I got a taste of the virtual ones, uh, yeah, we, because we didn't have a space that was already built. So for every class we had to rent furniture, build the space, bring in all the glassware, bring in all the supplies and then um, host the class for two hours and then break everything down. Ah, okay. So it was a total okay. of five five hours with you know six people working. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit different. And now you know the, there's still work that goes into these yeah. classes. You know we de- we you know come up with the cocktails and and demo them and and it's a lot of work and come up. We now actually we have a working kitchen, 
So I get to make the ingredients. So we did like a smoked pineapple syrup for our rum class and we made daiquiris with that. And we did um, a salted melon syrup for our last class. And the time before that was a Meyer lemon um, lavender cordial. Oh my gosh. And those were, you know, my skill sets running restaurants and bars was that I would be able to make these unique things. But never before could I offer them. So we always had to, I don't want to say dumb it down because we never dumbed our classes down, but we couldn't put super complicated ingredients that people had to make at home in them. This isn't, you know. But, but once again, you've got the on-site kitchen that you're making these things in, but you can't then make the cocktail with people in the same building. No, and while restaurants are now allowed to sell things to go because of the pandemic, the liquor stores saw no no movement in like loosening of the laws for us. And I, I get it. A lot of liquor stores experience exponential growth um, and restaurants were just trying to survive. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, California just made a law. I want to say within the last 18 months, might, might be a little longer than that, where if you go to a nail salon, a hair salon, they uh-huh. can serve you a drink without a license. <laughs> if you are buying or their service or goods. Which is wild to me. I'm going to need a diagram. (laughs) This is not fitting in my brain. Right. And then we, of course, have uh, legal marijuana in California. And Costa Mesa just opened that up. And there are six dispensaries within a hundred feet of my building, which is I'm all for marijuana. Bring it. But we are, we're, you know, loosening others. And still we have these antiquated Alcohol right. laws. Right. Countrywide, oh. obviously, but... Put, put a pin in that for 30 seconds just because I've got a very quick question. If I buy a sandwich from you and I buy a ready-to-drink cocktail from you in the refrigerator at the, at the front of your store and I, and I take that outside and I sit at one of your tables that's outside at your front door, can I open that ready-to-drink cocktail and consume with my sandwich? No. Someone's getting in trouble, whether you in an open container or myself for letting you do it. Wow. Yeah. It just just seems like half a law. It just doesn't seem to take into consideration how people operate. Right. Wow. Okay. All right. We don't need to, we don't need to belabor that point. The point has been made. So, so Josh and I have been talking and in season seven of the, the pad cost, as we call it, we have been talking to retailers and we have had Bikram from Massachusetts and we have had Holly from upstate New York and we've had Anthony from New York City and now we've got Gabby in Orange County here in Costa Mesa. And, and we're trying to, to figure out this retail landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a number of hypotheses floating around for why sales don't seem to be as strong as not even pandemic year, but even even 2019 numbers. And one of the things we're, we're talking about is the rise of marijuana. And, and you've just said, you know, six dispensaries within 100 yards yeah. of where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Do you think legal cannabis is taking away sales from from retail, from uh, liquor retail? I do. I think that we have like a changing demographic, right? You know, boomers are getting older and the, the, the younger demographic also doesn't happen to have as much wealth, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's contributing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people are like, there's entire swaths of community who, who are not drinking as much or not drinking at all, Okay, which is wild, but is, is happening. I mean, we, 
have never sold non-alcoholic like but like mocktail style non-alcoholic you know obviously we have like soda waters and stuff but um we have a section now because people want it they come okay. in and they ask for it and we have it but um is a little bit of you die each time or are you I feel cool like if uh if it passes my like quality check then I don't feel so bad about it but I've tasted a lot of garbage yeah. I mean half of these bottles are selling for $40 and they're distilled water uh-huh L- literally they are flavored water. I wish our listeners could see your face right now. And they're $40. And I'm just like, mm. So I, I preferably, like, I'm not buying, you know, alternate agave or alternate whiskey or alternate gin. Like, you can't convince me that those are, that make it, they make any sense. But there are lots of other things out there that are interesting. A lot of them have, like, adaptogens and, you know, they, um, and I've drank them and they're tasty and, and we're happy to carry them if they pass the quality check. Okay. And they make sense. Because okay. the other thing is, is is a ridiculous pricing for what it is, like I mentioned with the water distillation. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's got, we got a few quality checks to, to pass to get in here. Okay. And then I don't mind it. But yes, liquor sales are down all around. I'm hearing it from all of my reps. Right. They're saying it, right. you know. Do you think... You were you were just saying this a moment ago as well. Retail sales went through the roof mm. during the pandemic, and and while some of the high end stuff did okay, it seemed like people were really reaching for their jack. Right. Uh, they were really reaching for the known, the established. Right. You're curating a selection that isn't including things like that. Right. How do you? balance that you, you and I while the delivery was being made we were talking about the Campari mm-hmm. that, that you do have on your shelf and it it sticks out like a sore thumb because uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't expect to see it but you're being asked for it and you carry something that people are asking for mm-hmm. how do you balance how do you how do you work a curated selection while the funny thing is is you know six years ago there weren't Campari and Aperol substitutes, really. Mm -hmm. And now there are lots. Some are good, some are bad, some are way better than they are. Mm -hmm. But if I we found that if we did not have Aperol and Campari on the shelf, people were less likely to take the suggestion of buying the thing next to it. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. It was like, well, we don't have what you want, but we still want your sale. So buy this, and they pass and leave. But if there's, you know, um, a Capaletti that's sitting next to an Aperol and I'm like, I'm, I, know, I know you're reaching for the Aperol, but like you, you got to try this one. It's 10 times better. It doesn't have artificial coloring in it. Like there's a million reasons why. And they often will pop because also they're cheaper. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, Capaletti is like 21 a bottle. Aperol, you know, us selling it as a loss leader because we can't compete in any yeah, realm just not buying with the pricing. Volume, right? Um, is we're selling it for 32, I think right now there may be 30. Wow. Yeah. But you know, they're Italian imported spirits that don't have a giant marketing campaign. So I, I'm just, my, my mind is boggled that having it on the shelf will lead to somebody buying the recommended product next to it, but not having it will lead to no sale at all. I feel like it like lends a little <laughs> bit of trust. Like yeah, right? you have it. Yeah. You can absolutely buy it, but. 
you think there's a safety net there for the consumer? Like, if they don't really want to make the leap that you're suggesting, they could still walk out with that Aperol under their Yeah, under possibly. That is so cool. I've never heard that. There's got to be some sort of psychology, days. like, underlying in there. For sure. Mm. For sure. Oh. oh, I love that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. I am so, I'm so bamboozled <laughs> that that is so cool. Um all right, so what we're talking about, sales, sales being down, mm-hmm. pandemic. Did people over-purchase during the pandemic? Uh, have people simply returned to vacations and, and dining out? Um, do you get that sense? You're at least somebody who's had regular customers and you've known their buying habits. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing changes in the people whose buying habits you know already? Yeah. We have, like, I have a couple um, mezcal nerds who, like, will come to all the mezcal tastings. They used to buy everything, and now they buy way less. And then they'll show you pictures of their collections, and it's just, you know, it's insane. And I I get it. I also have a bar that I will never consume everything in, you know. I have gotten a little less ridiculous about, like, hoarding things that I don't want to open because I also have bought collections from avid people who have collected their whole lives and then their kids don't want it. Like, so then they don't know what to do with it and they're 80. So I don't want to be that person. So I am (laughs) drinking things that I maybe wouldn't have prior to. Right. Um, but yeah, I do. I think people bought, they, they hyper concentrated on a category that they were into. They overbought and now, you know, that same mezcal nerd is buying like something to go with the mezcal, maybe, you know, a Mexican gin that we got in, things like that. But they are, are definitely not buying as much of that, that niche category that they were into. So how do we get around that? Because bills have to be paid. Lights have to be kept on. What's, what's the next wave of getting people to open their wallets? (sighs) I wish I knew. <laughs> I don't feel too put on the spot uh, right now. <laughs> we, you know, we're just trying to constantly show people new things. And those, you know, our classes are really good at doing that. Um, we have wine clubs that our spirits people are now signing up for. And we have a spirit club that our wine people are signing up for. We have um, our cocktail club is starting up in October where you, you know, every month you get a different, like, bunch of booze that makes like recipes have been vetted by us um and and that really is i think the way is to show people something new so it sounds like we're we're back to selling expertise right there are things you know there are there are ways you can show people to enjoy perhaps even the things they own right Uh, you know your, your comment earlier in our conversation about you could take three base ingredients of a cocktail that you love swap out each one of those three and have a completely different cocktail what if those other three ingredients were already on your shelf right but maybe you pay for the expertise along the way maybe maybe that's the right the aspect of it yeah i mean i've got a few years of expertise that i'm just (laughs) i'm an open book we get you know i get uh customers who actually have you know other companies that might be in food and beverage and i'm like please ask me questions. I will yeah. share with you because, yeah. you know, I remember working for um, that group I spoke of earlier, Vodka Group, and 
in the original um, first restaurant called Broadway in Laguna Beach in 2011, you know, people were sometimes asking for recipes or, you know, and I was initially concerned about sharing them. Mm-hmm. And my, um, my mentor, um, Ahmed Labat, uh, who owns both of those restaurants, he was like, Gabby, you could give people your whole recipe book. <laughs> like no one's going to make the drinks as good as you do. Like they just like, there's something that is just missing. <laughs> and I, um, took that to heart and I would write, you know, customer won't like to drink. I'd write the whole recipe out for them. Wow. You know, we, yeah. We do so every month with our classes, and I have no problem in telling people how I do things. I'm also an oversharer. I think that's a symptom of ADHD. <laughs> so stop me if I if you need to. But yeah, I think I got lost there. Yeah, just just kind of how we still make this work when when customers aren't leaning on a retail store to to walk out with a bottle do you do you spend any time thinking about dtc direct to consumer or is is that another realm where you think you've got something that others don't if you know one, one of the things we keep talking about is the rise of american spirits you know right does it does it negatively impact you if a, if a distillery in Kentucky can ship direct to a consumer, a la a winery, a la a craft brewer? Um, I don't think that affects my shop necessarily as much as it f- affects bigger box stores, as much as it affects like larger volume places. For us, we are a small niche and we are a lot about handholding and like the experience of coming in here. You know, we have five unique employees who are super happy to talk and get geeky or nerdy or mm-hmm. leave you alone or whatever you mm-hmm. want when you're here. <laughs> and uh, that's what sets us apart. So like, yeah, you can direct shit, but I would think that would be especially for reorders, especially not if you're looking for something new and you need, you know, a little help in your home bar making cocktails. Do we want to talk shipping at this point? Sure. Do we want to talk the opening of regulations that would make it easier to yeah. ship outside of, of California? You know, ship spirits specifically outside yeah, of California? I think spirits shipping, you know, it just... I you think can do it, wine, right? Yeah, we can ship... Uh, outside of California. Yeah, outside of California, we ship lots and lots of things outside of California. Wine things. Lots of wine things. Um, but, you know, each state wants their taxes, Yes. That's what it comes down to. We, you know, you can apply for permits to ship alcohol into different states, but they make the, uh, the cost is low, but the effort is high or almost impossible. Okay. Because, you know, we inquired in one state and they told us, yeah, the fee is only $150. All you have to do is go through what you want to ship here and make a list and then write, like, get a request from the distributor in your state as well as the product, whoever oh makes it. Gosh. Get permission. Then make sure that we don't already sell it in our state. And if we do, then you have to get permission from our distributor. So it was oh, like, wow. you know, a, thing, a, lot of- a laundry list of things that are not possible to yeah. complete. Yeah. Especially if you have a, a store with, you know, 2,000 SKUs. Right. <laughs> um, so they, you know, and that I think just comes down to they want their, their cut of the pie. For sure. Yeah. For sure. But they really, I mean, I heard like rumors of USPS opening up shipping of alcohol. That would be brilliant. We keep hearing it, right? It's, yeah, it's just, still an ongoing rumor. Things are slow to move. <laughs> Come on, USPS. We're waiting on you. Make it happen. Um, 
it, but also makes me wonder if you could set up, if state governments could set up some kind of reciprocal agreement where someone buys from you, you're in California, they pay the California tax. Amazon's doing it. Why can't? Because that's where you are, Independent right? stores do it. Right? Go on, buy something from Illinois, pay it in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Like, if you could be in California buying from Illinois, but at some point, someone in Illinois is going to buy from California. Right. Like, could we just assume it's going to come out in the wash? I know that's not governmental thinking. That is man on the street thinking. Right. And if the onion has shown us nothing, it's that the man on the street is an idiot. So, Well, I mean, we have the access to these amazing algorithms and computer programs. <laughs> I, I mean, they've got AI and everything's on our doorstep. But, you know, we use Shopify. They have the wherewithal to be able to decipher an right. IP address and apply the tax code. Right. I don't know why it can't be as easy as that. Right. I mean, you do then have to rely on the retailer to pay, you know, possibly 48. I'm not shipping to Alaska or Hawaii. Uh, tax bills at the end of every month or quarter, which seems crazy. But, but that's, why, that's why I'm saying don't even do that. Right. If that person yeah. in Illinois buys from you in California, they just pay the tax to California. Sure. You have your California tax bill that you pay. Like, let's not get into 48 tax bills every quarter. Right. Like, let's simplify this. I, that's the way I, I think that makes sense. Perhaps it makes sense until you get to the states that do uh, double taxes on liquor. <laughs> Are you suggesting Washington state's not going to play this game? Yeah. <laughs> You know, they're just not going to be satisfied anyway. Arkansas is really not digging this plan. (laughs) Really not digging it. Although people in Arkansas want to buy good shit. They certainly do. (laughs) All right. Tax, 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 tax. It's always tax, isn't it? Josh and I have said this for years and years. Follow the money. Yeah. Where's the tax going? That's the Everybody wants to have their hands in your pocket. Right. But do you think it'll come? Do you think it will? There'll be some solution done because... A, so many people want it. It's going to have to come down to a corporation with a lot of money. There you go. Well pushing said. Pushing it. Yep. Very well I, said. I mean, that like ultimately is what someone gets fed up that works in a multi-billion dollar company and they're going to figure out a way to get it passed because they, they've got the money to do it. They've got the lobbying expertise. Um, so an, an Amazon, a Costco, a Walmart could be the... Could be the linchpin that opens it up. There you go. So, so yeah. while on one hand... Some retailers are worried about losing business to, you know, if, if you can buy your Johnny Walker from Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. why, why would you ever leave your house again? Um, right. Maybe to go to your job, but who knows? Um, but you, again, you're not in that pool. You're not, not in that you're pool. Not we don't sell things consumer, like that. Right. Right. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense for Costco to carry many of the things on our shelves. So that's, that's not necessarily a fear, you know, but... We've had some interesting things happen over the years. Like uh, we saw, we you know we we work with a lot of very small distributors, and one of our distributors uh, made a Manhattan kit and put it into Costco's, literally like the Manhattan kit. Like ah. those guys were coming in our shop, looking around, and they made it, and it had Willet. Oh my gosh! And Scrappies, like all amazing products that we sell. Oh. And could you imagine my dismay? Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Were you a grumpy Gabby that I day? I was a grumpy Gabby. <laughs> Did some choice words come out your mouth? For sure. <laughs> I was, and and the guys over there definitely had to hear it too, the distributor, because I was like... You made a phone call? Oh, yeah. Showed up on their doorstep? I mean, they, they said sorry with allocations. Wow. Mm. Wow. <laughs> 
I'm curious how, how far down the rabbit hole we want to go. Um, one, one of the questions we, we tend to, to finish on, and, and there's, no, there's no rush to have a 30-second answer or anything. It can mm-hmm. be another part of the conversation. But what does, what does the, the future hold? What's, what's got you excited? What's the stuff that gets you jumping out of bed in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> it's another one of those faces. Um, how 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 do you how do you fight the slowdown in in retail? You know what's yeah, but but without being maudlin about it, right? It's it's exciting, and mm-hmm. you still love having a store and marketplace. And you know, I'm I really like the creativity of the American distillers these days. I feel like there's. Oh. Nice, interesting answer. things coming in all the time. Um, sometimes, you know, when it's slow, it's hard to remember to continue to look for those items because, you know, you've got budgets and you're trying to stick to them sure. so that you can, you know, continue. But that's also why people love us. And so to walk away from things like that is hard. But like there's a, a female distiller at the end of Long Island her distillery is called Matchbook Distilling. Her name is Leslie. Okay. Forgive me, Leslie. I will not attempt to remember your last name at this moment. <laughs> but she's amazing. And her spirits are kooky in the best way. Like, I can always find something new and exciting. They don't always hit for me on a retail aspect. If I was in the bar still, I could literally turn anything that she produces into an amazing cocktail. But, you know, she's got like a sunchoke eau de vie, ah, which okay. like super cool and interesting and delicious, but I, it's hard to sell a sunchoke eau de vie to like a regular consumer. <laughs> um, but that being said, it would go amazing with like a, a small amount and like a martini. Oh, okay. You know, you give it some earthiness and interest. But she's also got like, you know, a different fruit Amaro coming out seasonally. Like she's done a squash one. She's done strawberry and blueberry and peach. And they're all amazing. They're not, you know, um, Italian Amaros in that like general sense. But they are unique and they are delicious and they are balanced and they make great drinks. And I... uh, I'm definitely like waiting to see what she's up to next. Okay. So those those are the kind of things I mean when I say like the ingenuity and creativity of of American like yeah, producers. For for international listeners, we're sitting here on the very edge of the West Coast. Yeah. And you just immediately went as to a far producer as I could. <laughs> three thousand miles. Well, she came out recently. We had a nice like <laughs> like field trip. We went out to a few restaurants and bars in LA and with um her distributor out here, which is Rocksteady. Um, he's, uh, his name is Gino. He's, you know, been around. He worked in the New York restaurant and bar scene in Australia and in LA and um, has been a distributor out here for a while now. And his new-ish uh, company is, is really, they he's really ethical and really like almost <laughs> to his own demise. Uh, he sells like the best of the best, you know, he doesn't mean well spirits. Okay. And, but he, everything's amazing and delicious and he's uh, people I want to support. Okay. You know, and he's got her in her book and his book and he's got some amazing mezcal producers and, and uh, some amazing rum producers. He's got a little bit of the PM Spirits book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. the Pear Labatt rums, the eight years. Amazing. Yeah. 
So the, those guys are keeping me interested in spirits. I'm, I'm really having fun with wine because wine, you know, I'm classically trained with wine is that I came up in like restaurants, fine dining that had like ridiculous wine lists with DRC and stuff on the lists. Okay. And um, I had the fortune of, you know, being that salty bartender, which every sommelier <laughs> loved. So they would always bring me little tastes of things that their customers brought in or vintage stuff that they got to open. And, and that <laughs> that is a little bit contrasty to what's kind of ha- happening out here with wine right now, which is, you know, a push towards natural wine. Yes. Um, which, you know, I've got friends on both sides. Trying to straddle in the middle is pretty interesting, but you know there's flawed natural wine out there. Yeah, yeah, um, of course. And it's pretty bad, some yep. of it. And there's a lot of really great natural wine, and then there's a ton of wine that has always been natural and does not get classified as natty. Um, and you know, there's everything in between. And I I can appreciate both sides. I I buy my like agave spirits in that way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you want unadulterated non, you know, uh, fucked with tequila products and agave products. And, and I want the same thing from my wine. I, I, now, as you mentioned here, I, I realize I've huge, made a huge mistake in our conversation. Would you say that the spirit you're most passionate about is agave spirit? It has been for a, a long time. And we have not talked to it. And our mm. listeners know we've done episodes on it. And yeah. So, so yeah. Screw, we got a couple screw the time. Yeah, we've we, we got a bit more time. Talk, talk to us. Talk, what, should we, what should we be looking out for in Agave? What is a good place for us to spend our money right now? Avoid all celebrity agave. 100%. 100%, right? That's like a basic general rule. 100%. Um, I have a couple noms that I'm just like, you know, I just continue to buy like almost when I look up on the shelf and I'm like, wow, I have a lot of Felipe Camarena. I have a lot of um, Cascoin in okay. different, like, you know, different labels. Yeah. But I just tend to go for, you know, the same like quality. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to uh, Mezcal, I'm a, like, I don't have any aged mezcal on my shelf. I'm like an unaged mezcal person. Um, I guess people do like some aged mezcals, but for me, what's so unique and beautiful about mezcal is that it is the most terroir driven spirit category. Mm-hmm. You get no better sense of place than opening a bottle of mezcal that is like true. And, you know, yeah. they've got mezcals that are coming in at 40% and, if you're buying a mezcal that's 45% every single time, then you have some, something is either being added, whether it's water, which is like sometimes, you know, that is a thing. And then sometimes they're, you know, adjusting it with colas or puntas to get to the right proof mm-hmm. to have it every time. That mm-hmm. being said, um, if you're buying an agave that's changing all the time as far as ABV goes, it's they tend to always have... Like you go and visit and there's a donkey and a mango tree and, and, and you know, you, you get it in the bottle. It's there. Uh-huh. The native yeast and, and it's, it's so different going to Kentucky and watching how it controlled everything is and then going and seeing, you know, the natural fermentation happening. The, you know, nephew or the son who's eight years old is digging the um, bagasse out of, you know, the, the vat by hand in buckets. I went to 
to Guadalajara, right, and visited some of the distilleries or palenques that um, they use at Mizonte. And these guys are in Guadalajara, which is in the region of, of te- where tequila is made. And they've been making agave spirits longer than anybody in those areas. Yeah. It's generational. Yeah. And they can't ride the tequila coattails, right? Yeah. They have to call it something else. Sometimes they're even fighting to be able to call it mezcal these days. And yeah. Yeah. it's it's wild that, you know, money, right? It always comes down to money. Absolutely. But we we sampled mezcals that are produced in in stone earthen like uh fermentation tanks that are underground awesome. and then they are dragged up a hill that's like 50 yards uphill to a tree trunk that is the still yeah yep yep you know and and <laughs> drinking those they they change your world view yeah real quick yeah i mean i can't think of another spirit category where i can get earth and green vegetal and funk yeah. and fruit and you know it's wild i love it so much it's such an exciting category do you share some of the the concerns that for it to be successful it will change it's, the practices it, it'll endanger certain agaves i mean it's almost like it's it's cannibalistic right like for it to be this successful or popular it's going to slowly implode. I mean, it, de- it definitely feels like doomsday-ish. I think that was, you know, the, the, mm, the start of the modernization of tequila was like, how do we yeah. upscale this, yeah. right? Yeah. And then I kind of look at it as like a bell curve where some of the modernization absolutely benefited the masses and being able to drink it. But then once we just took it too far, right, now we've got vanillin being added and you know all these different additives that are added post-production and we're taking unripe agaves from outside of the regions and putting them into diffusers and you just don't know what you're drinking yeah you know and you try to rely on websites like you know tequila matchmaker to guide yourself but ultimately Go to a retailer who gives a shit. <laughs> a certain message was delivered there, Gabby. A certain message. Um, r- real fast, as as someone who is curating and, and seeing the world, you, you said rum never quite hit. Is there something you're seeing building? Um, is, there, is there a spirit that, that is being talked about more than you have seen or heard previously agave for us is like the number one at this point we are struggling constantly to have a selection of agave especially tequila on the shelf that has like all price points you know um but is still made in an ethical and like you know yeah sustainable artisanal way yeah because we used to have a great leader that we would use in margaritas cimarron we still carry it but, you know, the price has gone up. We have bottles of uh, Blancos that have gone up by $30 a bottle. Like, wow. And that, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, you, we cannot make agave mature faster. Well, climate change is helping <laughs> a little bit. But but the, the appetite for agave, especially in, in California, is far super, like passing the ability to produce it. Yeah. But we get, you know, a small allocation of Fortaleza. About maybe like every two months, it changes. Sometimes it's every quarter. Also depends. Like in Nejo, we get a little bit less than we do the Blanco and the Repo. But we've had to change the way we sell it. 
You know, we can't put it on our website. We don't because it'll be gone while we're sleeping. Wow. Um, we we started by just limiting it by one per person. One, and then we had to go to one per household because we had multiple pupils in the same household <laughs> buying multiple bottles. You know, and, and each of them is surprised. Like, why, well, why can't I? Well, yeah. You know, I, I would like other people to be able to have it. Right. And half these people are hoarding the bottles anyway. But right. Now you have to physically walk your ass in the store That's it. and be a customer here. Right? You got to support. Yeah. You, you got to pay your dues. No more cherry pickers. Right? Um, uh, absolutely. And then one we're strictest on is Fortaleza because we're also not jacking up the price. You know, we see Fortaleza being sold at other stores for Blanco for 100 and Añejo for 200 and we're sub 100 on both of those still. Wow. Um, wow, that's a huge difference. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it, the same thing happened to us when McKenna hit that number one spot, and we've been selling it for twenty nine ninety nine as our go to. Like, here's the best bang for your buck in the yeah. store. Yep. And and we weren't necessarily doing the price increase. Heaven Hill was, and we were watching. You know, from one invoice to the next, it was going up ten dollars a bottle, and people were like, "What are you doing?" It. Nope. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> Um, but we're not, you know, we don't like to carry products that we've sold for years and years and then see that price increase come from us necessarily. Yes. Correct. Correct. No, we, we hear you. Well, it's, it's always a pleasure again to hang out with you. It's always a pleasure dipping into your expertise. We've never discussed cocktails, you know, and so no. getting to hear from you today about cocktails was really cool. And, and I'm so sorry that I neglected to bring up agave spirits oh. until the very last kick of the ball. Not at all. <laughs> that that La, La Palma that I, I bought from you a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, was one of the best things I've, I've ever tasted. Yeah. Even outside of agave spirits, just opening up to categories. That was remarkable. You know, they are all like half of those are all... Um, uh, unregistered, oh my god, not not certified mezcals, right? And the okay, first yeah. first person that brought non certified mezcals in to me was like, we've been told we're crazy, and now like the best ones we sell yeah. are uncertified mezcals. What a thing to look out for. Yeah, they're so fun. Awesome. Thanks a million. Thank you. Cheers. Fun. such a great conversation with with you and and just uh, just i have her name right it's gabby dion warwick is that is that correct that is, that's her sunday name yes that's, her sunday that's name. full sunday okay. usage <laughs> um yeah but in in all seriousness and in this i'm being very serious here i am so glad that you remembered to ask her about agave <laughs> <laughs> Awkward moment. <laughs> so thanks for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and not talking about the number one thing you're most passionate about. Yeah, right? Zoinks. <laughs> oh, I've been talking about are things Jason wants to talk about. <laughs> In agave. I can't believe I had to talk about licensing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nah, it was... It was really great hearing that. And, and for me, you know, you you being out here or out there in L.A. and, and talking with so many <laughs> retailers and, and us having our conversations with Holly and with Anthony in a previous episode and with Bikram, mm -hmm. you know, Absolutely. hearing these these more modern challenges that, that some of these retailers are experienced, you know, this is, these are the conversations I want to be hearing because a lot of people are starting to hurt 
purchasing habits are changing. France is throwing away 200 million liters of, of wine they can't sell because the demand is down. You know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you read that headline. You know, it's starting to put these yeah. pieces of the puzzle together that talk about demand seems to be down for, for wine, for beer, for spirits. How are the retailers coping with this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's interesting because not all retailers are created equal. And so you've yeah, got yeah. Gabby's out here doing this bespoke curation of cocktail ingredients, agave spirits, gin, scotch, bourbon. <laughs> you've got Bikram leading the charge on IBs. You've got Holly at First Fill Spirits with a, is it an IB store? Is it a, no, it's a it, predominantly it is, it is IB a store. whiskey store. It's a yeah, whiskey store yeah. with a small rum selection. Okay, okay. And, and, it's, and it's, it's typically the independent brands, independent bottlers, brands that they're simply passionate about and, and want to yeah. promote. You know, it is very much a passion project. It's unlike any other shop that I really know. Independent brands was the part that I was getting wrong. Uh, And so I was was thinking independent bottling when I should have been saying independent brands. So, yeah, yeah, that's spot on. And then I think when you get to to Antony at Roma, you've got this, on one hand, careful curation of of key brands, key offerings, Mm -hmm. but then by his own admission from the podcast, a store that is keeping the lights on and the doors open, right? What are people generally walking in off the street asking for here? When people are looking at the website, what are they asking for? And that brings me full circle to Gabby at Mixing Glass, who has Aperol and Campari on her shelves, but doesn't really want it there, right? Mm. That Oh my gosh, I have to tell you, now, now that the listeners have heard the interview here, and, I, and I, I make no bones about it when we're in the interview. When she said having an Aperol on her shelf or having a Campari on her shelf allows her to better make a suggestion to a customer and mm-hmm. them following it. Yeah. Was remarkable. Like, huh. <laughs> I really had my mind blown that if you if she didn't have Aperol, she didn't have Campari, and she suggested something else, folk would say, nah, I, nah, I don't think so, and, and leave the store. With them on the shelves saying, but if you actually take that one there, I think it's better quality, and it's cheaper, and I think it'll do more for your cocktail, people would buy it. Amazing. <laughs> they, they need that familiar <laughs> item just to hear out hear the news on something else. Right? There, wow. There, there's some kind of trust going on in there mm. where that consumer is thinking, they're making a recommendation. If I don't take that recommendation, I can still take my familiar brand. They still have my familiar brand for me. But I could take a chance. <laughs> and then and then they invariably do. How how cool was that observation I, I loved hearing that I have thought about that a lot since she told it to me in the huh. interview yeah it makes me wonder if if some 
some shop owners that, like you were mentioning uh, before the interview, where their their focus is OB, which makes sense in my opinion, with a smattering of IBs. If you've got some of those, um, the people on the shop floor, you know, who see someone picking up a a bottle of Laphroaig Ten and say, "Oh, but have you had this one?" They they've also done a Laphroaig, right? They're, they're, <laughs> see, that's those are the those are the good salespeople that can do something like that and right and yeah and make those suggestions, but those suggestions cannot or may not be heard unless the big brand is there for them to open yeah. their ears. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think to a degree, we all, we all shop with an element of, of comfort, mm. right? It's, it's nice to feel familiar when you're then taking a chance. And, and one of the things... I've said for a few years now is if you walk into a lot of liquor stores and there's there's a enormous bourbon selection and so much of it is a brand name all being distilled at the same distillery <laughs> yeah and there's there's an absence of comfort mm-hmm. standing in that section it all feels like the ground is moving beneath your feet right mm-hmm. And so, and, and so there you go. You know what? I think I will just take a wild turkey 101. I, I think I'm good, thanks. <laughs> and I'm back out the door again. Um, so so, so a, a, little, a little bit of comfort and a little jumping off point, I, I yeah. think, can make a world of difference to, to how we buy and how we learn more about any given category. Yeah. There you go. So there you go. And, and I have to say... The sandwich that you know, because because the mixing glass is also a market, um, and Gabby makes sandwiches. Um, the sandwich we had for lunch before the interview, I still think about it. It's just, and I lead, you know, as, as listeners here, I, I led the interview talking about the sandwich. Um, I'm, it's now been I think three or four days, and wow. I'm I'm still thinking about it. It's such a good. It sandwich. feels if we've talked about this before. Weren't in you know going through school? Weren't you voted uh, most likely to eat a sandwich? Always. Always, you love your sandwiches, Jason. I tell you, sandwiches. Me and me and Sweet Scott, we're all over the sandwiches. It's a good good place. All right. Well, thank, like you just said a second ago, Josh. Sincere thanks to Gabby for the time. You know, yeah. at, as we took that little break in the interview to have a delivery, and she was placing orders right before we hit record button, and then she was placing orders right after we finished. Mm-hmm. And so, she, I she gave me time in the middle of a, a busy afternoon, and I really appreciate it. Ah, that's great. That's great. And I want to bring in the paper boy really quickly, just for an update. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy in trouble again. I think it was last episode. You and I told our listeners about some upcoming uh, SCN bottlings, some some bourbon, some American single malt coming. And that was meant to be bottled at the end of August. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's September now. And now we're looking at a September date, as you do. Uh, just, just some, just some little snafus. These are, you know, we were talking a little earlier on about the things that, uh, you know, sometimes people don't understand, and it's those inner workings and how a tiny little detail can, can change your plans and and make you lose a week here and there. So yeah, we we had a bit of an issue at the bottling hall. Nothing big. The good news is, however, well, nothing big, but it did delay us by a couple of weeks. The good news is, <laughs> however, um, because of that weight, we are able to bottle six casks of whiskey now <laughs> instead of four casks of whiskey. It's true. It's, it's all true. It means we can send six casks of whiskey to the West Coast and not four casks of whiskey. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. So, so in addition to our Woodenville and to our Westward and to our Westland and to our Virginia Distillery Company, we are going to be bottling our two new wild turkeys. So I imagine many an ear have pricked up at the mention of, of wild turkey, it's something we're really excited for. We now get to bottle it a bit earlier than we had hoped. So that's good news. And we will be sharing more details on the release of these whiskeys as we're able to keep listening in here, keep an eyeball on your, on your emails. If you're a single cast nation member, if you're not go to singlecastnation.com, sign up as a free membership. You just create an account, go to our private Facebook group. If you're a member and you'll find updates there. Am I missing anything, Jason? I think to me that was the biggest no, bit that no. we needed to share. That's yeah, that's a big update. I was just sitting as you're as you're saying, you know, August has become September. Um, the next round of casks for the rest of the world are scheduled to be bottled this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, as to Joshua's point a second ago, the emphasis is on month. So we've got <laughs> a full month to get those uh, bottlings done. And the next time we get Jess on wax, we will have her uh, talk about what's coming down the pipe for ROW number five. Beauty. Beauty. Well, cool. Let's, um, I know you had an, an email come in that you wanted to highlight. I do. I do. I've got one as well, but why don't you, why don't you print out your PDF? Oh, and, I got it. I got uh, it right here. Right here. Oh, here's I actually, I made my own, I made my own paper uh, for this to be printed upon. Um, and I, I printed it. Uh, using uh, plant-based ink as well. So oh, good. It's That's bled good. a little bit into the paper that I made, but it's going to be Should use okay. squid ink, Jason. That would have helped it. Squid ink? No, please. No, no. That's, no. That should only go in your pasta. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a rule. Okay, so actually, uh, we, uh, we uh, meant to include this email in the, the last episode, but uh, but here we are now. So... So this comes to us uh, August 22nd, uh, Nicholas Franjapain. Mm, and I, I, I did follow up for a cor- correct pronunciation. Uh, the, last, the last name is F-R-A-N-G-I-P-A-N-E. And given that you and I can give 
you know, Smith a run for its money, uh, I figured that we would ask uh, Nicholas for the correct pronunciation. And so Frangipane, uh, Nicholas Frangipane. So Nicholas, and he does sign it Nick, so I'm going to use Nick as I'm talking through here. St. Nick. <laughs> St. Nick says, hi, Jay, Jay, and possibly Jay. In your discussion on the last episode of Extra Extra about 40-year-old Glenfarclas casks maintaining high ABV, I was shocked to hear Jason's comments about the casks being filled as high as possible to preserve the ABV. I had no idea that some casks were filled to a lower level to allow more interaction with the air. I had always assumed all casks were filled as high as possible because casks are expensive and one would presumably want to stuff as much spirit as possible into each one. I I see your face. We're coming back to it. Don't you worry, Joshua Hatton. Don't you worry. Yeah, good. I see you. Yeah, there's some conflation happening here, I think. Okay, continue. continues. I've now realized that cask filling is a big blind spot in my whiskey knowledge. What happens when a whiskey is recasked from a bourbon barrel to a sherry butt? Is there a lot of empty space? How do those filling machines work? Are they like gas pumps or do they go by weight? I'm also curious about refill casks. I always assumed that distilleries just reused their own casks after dumping them. But I've recently heard that this isn't always the case either. How much does the specific brand of bourbon in an ex-bourbon cask affect the flavour? I'd love to hear any of the ins and outs of cask filling on the podcast. Nick. Wow, okay. So, so yeah, so, so so let me come back to this yeah, first, yeah. Uh, this first paragraph, yeah. and then we can jump into some of those excellent questions that are being asked in the second half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, we've we've had uh, a miscommunication in the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking about Glenfarclas filling casks, and I talked about them going higher. I was talking about higher ABV. ABV so yeah. so they were they were likely filling at 69.5 or, or higher. We, we've seen higher numbers than that on, on filling as well. Rather than the industry standard of 63.5. Yeah. Sometimes you hear 62.5 banded about as industry standard as well. But, but I feel like I've heard 63.5 from more people than 62.5. <laughs> I've heard 63.5, I've heard 63.4, and I've heard 62.5. But then there's certain distilleries just by matter of course that have had a, a history of filling much higher. So um, Tam Du Distillery. Higher strength? Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Sorry, a uh, higher strength ABV. Uh, Tam Du uh, has been known, I, I don't know if they still do, but there was a, a long period of time where their filling strength was at 70 to 71% alcohol. So it was mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. higher filling strength. I think regardless mm-hmm. of what that ABV 
is the casks are typically being filled to the rim. Absolutely. And yes, oxidation happens, but that's as angel share happens. That's as years continue and the natural loss of liquid and the natural gain of oxygen happens. It's most major producers are not filling their casks by volume lower. Uh, I know there have been there have been some experimentations, and, and Ollie Chilton has talked about that in a previous episode. But yeah, to your point, Jason, what was in discussion what about something being higher was the ABV, not specifically how much or how little liquid was being put into that cask. Yeah, and, and even even further to Nick's point in the first paragraph here is I would imagine over the decades that Glenn Farkless were also re-racking those casks. And so, you know, producers haven't always been forthcoming to discuss re-racking, not, not necessarily because they think they're doing anything wrong or anything naughty, but because it, there's not really a policy in place for re-racking. It's more just uh, as warehouse people are moving casks around warehouses, like, oh, that one seems a little low. Or you, you dip in to check a, a flavor profile and you go, oh, I had to, had to dip that quite far. We should maybe combine a couple of our low-fill casks right now. Right? Re-rack like it it's, into something, yeah. yeah. Right, right. There's, it's, it's a moving target. It, it's, to, to my mind, it, it's not one based on policy, uh, but is reacting to circumstances. Yeah, well, I, I think a, a, a good example of this and this also ties into his other question of when you are re-racking from, say, a bourbon barrel, which is a 200-liter cask, into, say, a sherry hogshead or a sherry butt, where you're going into 250 liters or 500 liters, are you just going from one cask to one cask, one to one? And the answer to that, at least what seems common to my, to my mind and, and what we know some distilleries have done is um, let's take Kilhoman for instance and when they do some of their finishing in special casks in a new cast type that they want to start playing around with they'll take a number of bourbon barrels marry all of that liquid together and then fill to the brim mm. those mm. new casks and the end product may be a larger release that is all of that whiskey and all of those those final finishing casks combined, or that could be converted into the bottling of a single finishing cask. You know, that, that seems common. One of our very first bottlings, the Aaron 12-year-old in Pinot, yep. we were told that's what yep. it was. They married bourbon barrels together, filled Pinot casks, and we bought one that had liquid it was in that Pinot cask for, for four years. But before that, it was a combination of a few casks. We bottled the this, this single finishing cask, if you will. Um, so that sort of industry seems to be industry standard, to my mind. Yeah, yeah. In, in some instances, when you speak to producers, they talk about the, the fetishizing of the single cask. Yeah. And and the single cask exists at the end point. It doesn't necessarily exist up front, which is producers are putting new make spirit into wood. 
and they will see what happens to that spirit over the intervening years. When we then come along sourcing single casks, we say, you know, this is as it has ever been, and we celebrate thee. And it's like, no, it's just a, it's just a single cast today, right? Yeah. It lived it lived a life. It took a journey. A whole bunch of things happened to that on yeah. its way to being a single cast today. And I know there have been some consumers who then look backwards and go, "Oh, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes." It's like, no, the whiskey yeah. business was in the business of whiskey. And then we came along in the business of single casks and we talked about single casks. Yeah. It's, <laughs> no, there's nothing nefarious happening with re-racking or topping off or <laughs> changing no, location. Exactly. Like, it's all good. The only thing that's happening is you're starting to learn a bit more. It doesn't change the quality <laughs> of that end product, how delicious it is, how worth the money it is that you spent for it. It's just now you know how the how does how do they say that now you know how the sausage is made you know that's that's, that's it. there you go right. there yeah. you go here here's a i'm going to combine these questions because I'm, I'm curious your experience I, I know my experience here when nick says how do these filling machines work are they like gas pumps or do mm. they go by weight um clearly weight is a part of it yeah and they, they are filled... Uh, now, here's the thing, like trying to get my, my memory straight here. Have you seen casks filled on scales or do you see them being filled and then rolled to scales? I've seen them filled on scales, but I think things are changing a little bit and maybe I'm wrong here and maybe I'm just looking at a single example but uh, the, the folks at the Glenallachy Distillery, their, their filling mechanisms are programmed. So when they're, filling, mm. when they're filling a barrel and that's 200 liters, there's a setting for 200 liters. There's a setting for 250 liters, you know? You know, of course there's tolerances uh -huh. and I imagine maybe it, it's 180 liters and then they s sort of top it off like you are at a gas station. But the reason that I know this is there's a story of the operations manager there and he was showing people, oh, we got this new system and it's programmable. <laughs> and I think someone played a trick on him and, and pressed like, oh, the, but, the but button, the 500 liter, and he's filling a barrel and it starts spraying out oh, and geez. snapping pictures as he's doing it. So, um, you know, so there is that way of filling casks as well. And whether that's starting to become industry standard or is industry yeah. standard, yeah. I simply yeah. don't know. But I know there is the, the weighing system and there is this system. Yeah. And to, to my mind, you know, several of the systems that I've seen have been like a gas pump. But think of, think of this, Nick. The more you fill up the gas tank in your car you know what that tank sounds like when it's getting full. Yeah. Watching the experience of those who work in the filling station, which is what they call the corner of the distillery <laughs> where they're filling the casks, right? Watching the the experience there, they're listening to that cask. If if it's just a manual and they're filling and it go, to the gunnels, oh. as we'd say. Yeah. 
right? Right. Yeah. You start to hear the difference there, and and they note it to ease off the the handle um, as it's as it's getting full. But you you can also imagine in this world of efficiency in which we live. Having a computer programmed to put 200 liters into a 200 liter cask is going to be a hell of a lot faster. Blah, blah, blah. Well, don't do it, industry. Don't do it. No, fight the power. Do it. Do fight it. the machine. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> Listen. No, I hate it. Think, think, about, <laughs> think about what Billy had to go through when he had 40,000 casks, whatever the number was, <laughs> and had to re rack it all. Think about what Ollie at, at Tormor is likely doing with his re-racking, if he has a re-racking program. Having yep. a system like that in place allows them to re-rack potentially in a faster manner, which simply gets yeah. that liquid tasting better sooner rather than later. And if it helps them uh, expedite some of their things, I'm all, I'm all for it. We have the humans going. Bring back the humans. Um, Here's, here's a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll get on to the, the email that you've got over there. Uh, Nick says, I always assume that the distilleries just reuse their own casks after dumping them, but I've recently heard that this isn't always the case either. Um, and, then, and then I think the good one that we do have some examples for is, is how much does the specific brand of bourbon in an ex-bourbon cask affect the flavour? But, mm. but before we get to that one, um, what, what are you seeing out there, Joshua, with reused casks? Clearly, distilleries are reusing their own dumped casks. But are you also seeing used barrels coming in <laughs> from, from, other, from other distilleries, other scotch distilleries? Yeah, well, so I'm glad that you're, you specified scotch there, right? Obviously, bourbon and rye producers are not reusing their casks to create more bourbon and rye. That's just not possible. But from a Scotch whiskey standpoint, I see a lot of cask sharing happening. Um, mm-hmm. Without naming the distillery, there's plenty of whiskeys being matured in ex-Isla quarter casks, mm-hmm. right? So, so distilleries are sharing with, with other distilleries because they can't use them anymore or don't want to use them anymore for, for whatever reason. I think some of the more interesting relationships, and this may tie into that last question that Nick had asked, is is where you've got larger companies that own both a bourbon distillery <laughs> and a Scotch whiskey distillery, right? Lafroy uh-huh. uses uh-huh. Maker's Mark casks. It makes sense. It's a beam-owned distillery. Now, yeah. are they doing that because that's the way it tastes best? Probably not. I think they're doing that because yeah. what a way to save some money. And does Maker's yeah. Mark great, make great bourbon to season American oak? Hell yes, it does. So it's, it's just a nice little convenient match to save some money. <laughs> convenient. The stars aligned and they found themselves owning both yeah. types yeah. of distillery. Yeah. Uh, what a coincidence. Um, so, so I'm actually going to uh, close out this final question by talking about Colholman, mm. where Kilholman have been putting out the 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 partnership, the relationship, the you know following the thread back to the original distillery to say, and I'm being very careful here not to throw around some distillery names that they're not using or not sharing, but they've they've run that path back to saying, yeah, that that did come from such and such a distillery. 
Now you can taste Gulholman in that distillery's casks. Yeah. This one over here came from that distillery. You can taste that distillery's style in these Gulholman casks. And I, I, when I first heard of that, it's probably been a couple of years now, if not a few years, since I first heard about that move. I think it makes huge sense. Look at what happens when we lead Whiskey Geek tours through a warehouse. Mm. People are reading bourbon distillery names off cask heads. (laughs) Say, oh, this came from there. That came from there. Oh, I'd love to taste that one from there. (laughs) Like, Whiskey Geeks, that's that's foreshadowing for what's about to happen with the next email. Whiskey (laughs) Geeks want more information. We also said that a second ago about information right the question is what do you do with that information right like remember you've got an n of one where that scotch cask came from that american cask don't go making broad sweeping statements about all scotch in all casks from that distillery temper your expectations but i think for that n of one i think it's a, a ton of fun i think it's a really great move yeah, I think the, the, the best thing people can do with the information that they learn is hold on to it and learn more and put it into context with the other stuff that you've learned and keep on <laughs> learning. Because it's, you know, it's, it's interesting when people have a little bit of information, it can make them very dangerous. Yeah. And back to yep. your point about people fetishizing the single cask and thinking, yep. oh, they're doing this, that, and the other thing, and they're so dishonest. Nope, they're just going about the business that they had been going about for decades. You just happen to yep. be learning how the sausage is made. Continue learning. Continue learning. And yep. so with the idea of continue learning in mind, you have an email. First of all, thanks to Nick Japan for a series of excellent questions, and I'm glad we could clear up our miscommunication there as well. But onwards, next email. So we we have an email from, from our very own Hop on the Bus, Gus, from, uh, <laughs> from Angus Smith, Gus or Jus, however you want to pronounce his name. Uh, I'll, I'll call him Gus. And the email subject is Raze Water. And he says, Howdy, fellas. Just finished listening Howdy. to your excellent interview with William Dobby of the Isle of Raze Distillery. Just a small detail that I wanted to clarify and potentially something you may want to follow up on with, with Raze for confirmation. To the best of my knowledge, all of the post distillation water used, i.e. still strength to cast strength dilution and cast strength to bottling strength dilution, is water that has been reverse osmosis filtered. I believe the primary reason for this is to strip ions, particularly calcium ions, from the water to prevent the formation of oxalate salts Calcium oxalate is the dominant of these salts and makes the majority of non-reversible flocculation material in whiskey, which has been diluted during processing. Thus, using reverse osmosis water helps in eliminating the need for whiskey filtration. Yay! That said, reverse (laughs) osmosis water... That was his yay, by the way. That was not my yay. No, I I understand. I'm watching you read it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That said, reverse osmosis water has some of the lowest sensory character of any type of filtered Mm -hmm. water and would therefore contribute 
functionally nothing to the whiskey other than the effects of dilution itself. Thanks again for all the great content. You guys continue to kill it. Thank you so much, Gus Juss. And he says, cheers, Gus Juss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a cracking email because it, it speaks to what we just had with, with Nick there, which is information, education, distillery going about their whiskey business, but with a follow-up question. And, and one of the things we, we do here, you know, is when a distillery says, oh yeah, we use this water, you're looking at it right now if you're, if you're on site, right? That water you're seeing there, we use in this, these numerous ways. Mm. And we go, okay, and then we move on to the next thing. I think not being said there is we process the water that you're looking at right there in numerous ways. And then we use it in numerous ways based off of the way we've processed it. Yeah. None of that gets set, which is a bit like, yeah, we fill a single cask and then 30 years from now we sell a single cask. What's not being said is we then have processes in place over the course of those decades that we do in-house. So... Yeah. So I, th- I think it's a it's a terrific question, and I'm I'm curious on what comes back from Rassi on that question. Yeah, but he's 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 right that os- osmosis water is not bringing anything to the table. Like it's not adding to the sensory, as he used in his email. Yeah, I'm 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 sure he is correct there. Uh, you know, some of the follow up questions that I have to his follow up question, or at least I've got one follow up question. to His follow up question because I don't know anything about water processing, uh, is like chill filtration, are there levels to that water filtration process that allows Mm. you to retain Mm -hmm. certain aspects, Mm -hmm. certain minerals that you want to include that can contribute? And I ask this, and and maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no, Um, but we'll see what we hear back from Raze, but... They, William seemed somewhat convinced that it, that their water is contributing something to it. And, and so I'm, I'm going to ask him the question, or I've got an email out to him, but I'll see if I can dig a little deeper uh, in, into that. Yeah, the other one that comes to mind, you're, you're talking about levels of chill filtration, and I was thinking about levels of large particle filtration. Uh-huh, right, yeah. where you've 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 got one level that's basically keeping <laughs> splinters, large splinters, out of the final bottling, but you've got filters that get smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and smaller, and it's not chill filtering; it's still large particle filtering, but it gets very very small for what's being kept out, and so yeah, I, I think that's a a smart way to to think about it as yeah. as levels as layers and i'm now excited to hear from from <laughs> rassi to to learn more about water it's not you know water procedures are not things we're following up on yeah. and so i think this is a a great nudge mm-hmm. from uh, gus gus and and you know uh, what down there i i think i think it's a, a nice reminder to to myself, to, to you, that, you know, sometimes we hear information from people, we, like you had said, we accept that information, we move on. 
and was a question missed? And yeah, I think I think a question was missed. So I'm going to try to keep my um, try just try to stay a little more focused and make sure I'm I'm actively listening a little more to to better ask some of these questions that that Gus just asked. But producers do it all the time, right? Or, or, you know, again, I don't think Rassi's trying to pull the wool over anybody's no, eyes. No, no, no. But no. if if you're engaged in in the production of whiskey day in and day out, you're you're convinced that that thing you do over there is a difference maker. Mm-hmm. That thing you do over that other bit is a difference maker, right? And, and that that was one of the questions you asked William: is like, where do the differences lie? You know, and it's the island and it's the mountainous region and it's the climate and it's the grain and it's the yeast and it's the cast. It's all the things, it's right? All the things, yeah. And so, and so to, you know, to come to your defense, you, you can ask all the follow ups, right? Just so happens to have this follow up. thanks to Nick. Huge thanks to, to Gus Juss uh, for, for sending in the questions. Those are really, really good questions. So I appreciate them sending it yeah, in. Yeah, those are a couple of crackers. Uh, if you would like to be like Nick and like Angus, uh, you can email us. You know, send us in your questions. Send us in observations. Uh, info at singlecastnation.com or questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. Uh, that's the best ways to reach us. Uh, thank you again, of course, to Gabby Dion Warwick from uh, The Mixing Glass. <laughs> I really hope she doesn't mind me calling her Gabby Dion Warwick. Yeah. It's just I'm so just perfect. I'm just glad we I'm glad we stopped long enough to have the interview and didn't just walk on by. <laughs> Do you remember Dion Warwick had a uh, a hotline, psychic you, a psychic hotline? She had a psychic hotline. <laughs> It was amazing. Yep. Absolutely. Anyway, um, <laughs> so with that in mind, am, am I missing anything? Are we are we are we at the point where we raise our glasses to, to our dear listeners? We do. We absolutely raise our glasses and we say to one another and to Jess, "See you in Scotland," and continued safe travels for each of us. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.